There is an essential difference about Jesus. Men recognized that in the very beginning. Even strangers were attracted to him, and the multitudes thronged out to follow him. A stranger who had never seen him before said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. There was an essential difference in Jesus. Even his friends recognized it. And on one occasion, Peter said, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He had the aura of God about him. There was an essential difference in the things he did. Strange that he would say, Turn the other cheek and walk the second mile. And the things he encouraged men to do were totally revolutionary in their nature, for he was the most revolutionary man who ever lived. There was an essential difference in the things he said and the way he said them. Someone said that the words of Jesus were like the jagged edge of a cross-cut saw. They were like hand grenades tossed among the crowd. And so when people came to hear him teach and preach, they went away saying, no man spake like him. For he did not use the jargon of the religious leaders of the day, and he did not talk like they talked. As a matter of fact, he introduced a new concept to teaching and preaching. It was the teaching in parables. And he would take these little stories out of life and call up illustrations and call along contrast, and they were magnificent. Sanday said that parables are the greatest literary art form in the world. And the people would hear him teach in parables, and it would move them and touch them as he would just call up experiences out of life and out of nature and teach a profound truth. And so the parables themselves became hand grenades tossed among the crowd. There are many parables in the New Testament, and there are many chapters that are profuse with parables, but I suppose the greatest chapter of all in its dynamic with regard to parables is the 15th chapter of the book of Luke. And in this 15th chapter, there are three parables and they all teach the same story. They all have the same emphasis. I have chosen the first one as the basis of this message this morning, the parable of the lost sheep. And I want us to look at it in light of three perspectives. I want us to see the lost sheep as it portrays or pictures the Christless men of the earth. And then I want us to see the, the shepherd as he seeks that sheep because that is a new disclosure of God, a new picture of him that man had not conceived before. And then I want us to look, if we have time at the end, of what it means to be found, the sure salvation that comes through the seeking Savior for the lost. The lost sheep as he portrays the Christless men of the earth. What a strange word Jesus uses to describe the Christless of the world, lost. Have you ever been lost? When my son was small, he got lost. We were at uh, Ranger Stadium in, 
in Arlington, Arlington Stadium. I asked for his permission to use this because, you know, when you get a little older, you kind of get embarrassed that you get lost. But when he was smaller and we were coming out of Arlington Stadium, he got lost in that crowd, and I don't know when. I've never been as frightened. Now, I know he was frightened, but he couldn't, his, fright, his fear could not compare with mine at all. I went to the stadium officials, and they assured me this happens all the time. They said, when everybody's gone, you'll see a little boy wandering around out there, and you'll know that's yours. This don't get excited about it. Don't worry about it. But I could just imagine all kinds of things happening to him, and I want you to know I panicked. I was literally terrified, and when I saw him for the first time after he got lost, I can describe the indescribable joy of it. Have you ever been lost? Have you ever had someone in your family lost? What a strange and terrifying word our Lord uses to characterize the Christless men of the earth. Lost. What does it mean to be lost? I think that's a nebulous term that Baptists have used freely all of our all of our life, we talk about being pe about uh, lost people, about people being lost, but I don't know whether we really know, have the faintest idea of what the biblical concept of lostness is. What does it mean to be lost? Well, in the first place, it means that as far as your usefulness is concerned, it is lost. Now watch this. You see, you're not here by accident. None of us is here by accident. We're the design of the designer. We're the dream of the dreamer. We're the plan of the planner. Before we were ever conceived, God had a dream and a plan for us. God had a will for our lives, and he brought us into being, and man, if he reaches his highest fulfillment and function, is to find that will and that design and that plan and fulfill it in the world. For example, this watch I've just taken off my wrist has a purpose, a plan. It's to mark the time for me, and sometimes you may not think so, but I'm aware, conscious of the time. And I know that the time right now is accurate because I said it early this morning. As long as this watch marks the time for me, it is useful. But if something happens to the inner mechanism of this watch and it no longer can fulfill its purpose, then it either is to be destroyed or to be fixed. It has to be repaired or cast away. Now the Bible says that when sin enters the life of a man, when he rebels against God, something happens in the totality of his being, and it's called total depravity, so that all of his being and personality is affected by that sin and destroyed by it, mind, will, and emotions. And his usefulness to God is destroyed, is lost. And that's why God told Jeremiah, you take that vessel that was marred in the hand of the potter and you show the people that that vessel represents Israel that would not yield to the design of God and you show them that God's only alternative is to destroy the useless vessel. Now my purpose in the world has been designed and planned by God 
And if I don't find that will and that plan and yield to it, I am lost as far as God is concerned. To be lost in the second place means to be separated from God. The Bible pictures man in the beginning in a state of innocency in the garden and there was fellowship between man and God. Then sin entered into the garden and into the experience of man. And the result of that sin was there was a division between man and God so that man felt that he had to hide from God and thus did. As though there were some gigantic erosion, man stands on one side of the chasm and God stands on the other and sin has separated him from God. The wages of sin is death and that word means to be separated from God. And the testimony of the religions of the world is that man has sought in vain to build a bridge that will span the chasm caused by his sin and come into fellowship with God. Can't be done. Sin separates. To be lost is to be separated from God. To be lost is to be dead in trespasses and sins. Now, if a person is separated from God by his sin, he is separated from the life source. And when he is separated from the life source, he begins to die on his way to death. Eldon Trueblood says that this is a cut flower civilization. We may be alive and flourishing now, but we'll soon die because we have been cleaved from our rootage. When a person sins against God, he has been severed from the life source and he dies on his way to death. Did I tell you the favorite pastime in Monday, Texas, when I was a youngster? I'm sure you're excited to know what the favorite pastime was. You've been wondering all your life, I wonder what they did in Monday, Texas on Saturday afternoon. Our favorite pastime was go to the matinee, to the movie on Saturday afternoon, and the best, the favorite movie was the, were the movies about these uh, creatures from the dead, you know. And we'd sit on the front row. If you got the number one seat in the movie in Monday, Texas, you got front row aisle seat, and we'd line up to get that. And they'd have these horror movies, and these creatures from the dead would come up out of the graves. You've seen those. And they'd call out the militia, they'd get the National Guard and heavy artillery and bombers, and they'd bomb those creatures from the dead and shoot at them with you know, heavy artillery, or artillery. But they couldn't kill them. You know why? Because they were already dead, you see. They were the living dead. I have seen the living dead in Durant, Oklahoma, I am looking this morning into the faces of some of the living dead. Every person in this place, in this earth, who has been severed from God because of his sin and is lost is dead in trespasses and sins. He has been cleaved from the life source. And so Jowett got that letter from the man filled with despair and hopelessness and the man signed his name, Thanatos, the Greek word for death. 
That's what it means to be lost. It means your usefulness is lost. It means that you're separated from God. It means that you are dying now, the process of dying, and it will ultimately culminate in the second death. But there is a better picture in this parable that's before us. It's the picture of the the shepherd. And the shepherd, as Jesus described him, is a picture of what God is like. For you see, Jesus came to reveal God to man. He is the perfect revelation of God. He has exegeted him. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is to say, Jesus made God, invisible God, visible. So that when man understands and sees Jesus, he understands and sees God. And I want to tell you this morning that unless you know God through Jesus, you don't know God. If you've never come to God through Jesus, you've never come to God. For Jesus is the only way a man will ever know God or ever come to Him. Now somebody says, well, that's pretty narrow. Well, there's sometimes when we have to be narrow. You go to the physician and he diagnoses your illness and says, I want to give you a prescription for that illness. I know it'll cure it. You just go down to the pharmacy and give them this prescription and they just have a room full of medicine You just take your pick, try all of them if you'd like, and one of them will work and you'll be well. Now, you wouldn't appreciate that kind of a doctor too well, but you see, all of that medicine is there in order to accomplish one purpose, that is the health of the ill. And yet, if there is one way to that cure and only one way, that's the way you want to know, right? The only way a man can come to God is through Jesus. Jesus said, No man knoweth the Son, save the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, or he to whomsoever the Son hath revealed him. If you've never come to God through Jesus, you're still lost. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, he said. He is the full and final revelation and disclosure of God. And so Shira says, now we look out on the mystery of God through the opening that Jesus has made in our darkness. Now if Jesus is the full and final revelation of God and the ultimate disclosure of Him, what is God like from this text? For to the Jew God was conceived as being holy, other, and unapproachable, a being separated and apart from man. And occasionally the Jew would admit that if man got things in the right order and perspective and condition, God might accept that man if he came to him. But the idea that God would seek for man was mind-boggling and revolutionary and different. And so when Jesus said, that God will not only accept you if you come to Him, but that He 
seeks actively for your salvation. It was a remarkable thing as to the Jew, to say the least. God seeks man. Now, I think sometimes that we have pictured man in search of God. I've, had, I've heard people say, well, uh, you know, we're seeking God as though man were looking for God like a blind man feeling around in the dark for a door. But the picture that the Bible draws of man and the picture that I know of myself is not one seeking God, but man who is willing to go anywhere and do anything to escape him. I tell you, the theme of the Bible is not man's search for God, the theme of the Bible is God's relentless quest for man. He seeks you. He wants you. Remarkable as it may sound to the unbeliever, God seeks you and wants you. As a matter of fact, he will leave you restless until he finds you. Um, a few years ago, a body was found in the city of El Paso. And there were no identification papers on this body. Nobody knew who he was. And so they decided that they would pitch a, run a description of him in the paper to see if somebody might, you know, know something about him or could identify him. And so they told this story of this nameless body found in the streets of El Paso and described him. It got in the papers, and it got an immediate barrage of response. Some parents writing whose sons had become prodigal and left home and hadn't heard from them. Some sisters writing about brothers, brothers writing about brothers, uh, wives writing about husbands who had deserted them and children. But there was one letter that caught the attention of the people there in the newspaper and it was a, it was a letter written by a, by a man and his wife, a mother and a father. They were obviously old in years, their penmanship was shaky and, and they said something about, in the, in the preface of their letter, they said that their son had left home several years before and they had not heard from him. They didn't know why he left no real reason, just left and they'd not heard from him since. And they said, they described him, age, etc., identification marks, that kind of thing. For they said, it would be better for us to know something about him, even if he's dead, than just to wonder where he is. And then, at the end of that preface, they said, would you run the following letter in the paper? just in case our son is alive and might see it and read it. And the letter started out like this. Dear, name the name. Your mother and I don't understand why you left. When you walked out years ago, you broke our hearts. And your mother has grieved away every night since you left. We long to see you. We want you to come home. No questions asked. We'll forgive you. We want you just to come back so we can see you once more before we die. And he signed his name there. It was, the, it was the letter of a father 
who is, who is desperately seeking his lost son. I want you to put your ear up to the pages of this book sometime and you'll hear those relentless footsteps of God. You open the pages of this book and you read it for it is the story, it is the letter of a father who has lost his child and desperately wants him. For God is a God who seeks his lost, his children. He's a seeking God. And I'm here to tell you out of the voice of my own experience, God will not let you alone until he finds you. You'll go down to the grave with God pursuing you. The second disclosure of God that's in this marvelous power is that he is a God who is intimately personal. Now for a sheep, there is no intimacy like the intimacy related to the shepherd. As a matter of fact, the shepherd was the life source for the sheep. Read the 23rd Psalm and catch a picture of it sometime. Most of you already know it from heart, by heart. But to the shepherd, to the sheep, the shepherd was the intimate, personal guide and salvation and source of life. Now, for some of us, God is sitting somewhere on, the, in a, on, a, on a throne way off in the beyond who is oblivious and unconcerned about our needs, isn't he? When Adolf Eichmann was was being tried for his atrocities for the, of the Jews. They had him in this bulletproof proof glass enclosure and somebody interviewed him. I saw it on the news. Somebody asked him this question, Mr. Eichmann, do you believe in God? And Mr. Eichmann said, I certainly do believe in God, but the God I believe in is not concerned about me. Do you believe that this morning, that God is concerned that you have problems financially? Do you believe that he's concerned that you have physical, medical problems? Do you think that God cares about the little affairs that go on in the privacy of your home? Yes, he does, because he's intimately committed himself in a personal way to his people. And so one day a father said to his son, talking to him about God, and his son said, well, I want a God with a face. We have a God with a face, a God who understands our need, who feels for us, who has involved himself in every affair of every life. And so Jesus revealed him to us that way. Finally, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be found? If to be lost means usefulness is lost, separated from God and dead, what does it mean when he talks about the fact that the shepherd found the sheep, put him on his shoulders, and brought him back rejoicing? What does that mean? What is involved in the concept of eternal salvation. Now, most of us here this morning have experienced eternal salvation. What does, what, but what does that mean? What does that involve? Well, let's take the concept of what it means to be lost and contrast them. For example, 
if to be lost means to be useless, to be found means to be useful. And so, do you remember that little story, Philemon, the little letter, Philemon? You know what that story is about? Onesimus, the runaway slave, leaves his slave master, Philemon, finds somehow in the providence of God the gospel as Paul is preaching it and is converted, embraces Christianity. And so Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, his slave master, because he certainly respects law, the law of the land. And, 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 and if Philemon chooses, he could put Onesimus to death. But when he comes back, he comes with a letter from Paul in hand, which is now the New Testament epistle of Philemon. And there's a little statement in there. It's astounding. Listen to it. Paul says about Onesimus to Philemon, He who was once unprofitable is now profitable both to you and to me. You know what that means? It means that only when a person finds Jesus Christ does he find usefulness in life. And so Michelangelo got that big stone, that big boulder that nobody could do anything with. And he put a canopy over it and he got his hammer and his chisel and he went to work on it. And when he stretched back the curtains of that canopy, he had the marvelous statue of David, so lifelike that Michelangelo himself thought it was breathing and took a, took a rod and smote the statue and said, Speak. And so when God built his canopy of grace over us, and did his work of redemption in our life, when he stretched back the curtains, he exposed us to the world as being useful for the first time. He made something beautiful out of our lives. I was preaching in England, and I used that statement. He, he took something useless, and he made something beautiful out of it. And there was an unbeliever there, said to one of her neighbor friends, boy, that guy's arrogant. He's saying he made God, th that he was beautiful. What I was trying to communicate was that if there's anything worthwhile in my life or yours, it'll only be because of the redeeming work of God's grace. He makes us useful. If to be lost means to be dead, then to be found means to be alive. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. When the Christians began their work after the ascension of the Lord, there immediately began the persecution of the Roman Empire. Some of them were thrown into, into lion's dens. Some of them were sawn in half. But those who were the most unfortunate became slaves in the Numidian mines. They were bound in chains and they were made to row their own vessels to the northern coast of Africa. And when they got there, the chains that bound them were placed around their neck and to their ankle. And the links were shortened so they could never stand upright again. And some of them had their eyes gouged out and their foreheads were branded and they thrust into their hand a mallet and a chisel, and they were driven into the Numidian mines to die. 
Some of them, if they were fortunate, caught the prevalent fever and died right away, but many of them lived on and on. And when freedom finally came, those slaves were liberated. Archaeologists went into the Numidian mines. And Sangius Martyrum, that marvelous little treatment of that, describes it, says that on the walls were inscriptions written by these poor creatures, these slaves. Some of them chiseled in the walls their favorite scripture. Some of them wrote names of loved ones and friends. But Sangius Martyrum says there was one word that just was over and over and over again along the walls of those dungeons. Like as they said it in the book, like a long line of black swallows chasing one another to the light was the Latin word vita, vita, the Latin word for life. For when you find Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what circumstances it doesn't matter the dungeons and the prisons of one existence. When a man finds Jesus Christ, he finds life. He begins to live. It's abundant and full and rich. Now, if to be lost means to be separated from God, to be found means to be reconciled to him. This story, and I'm through. It's a kind of a hypothetical illustration, but I think some of us can identify with it. Can you picture a home where there's an eight-year-old boy and a six-year-old brother? And if you, if you can get that picture, you can stay right with me. And they fuss incessantly. And I see some smiles because I have a feeling some of you have been there. And one day they're just fussing and, and there's just war going on all day and the mother of that house is just beside herself. She's just at her wit's end and her nerves are shot. And finally she says, I'm gonna, you go to your room and you stay in your room until your daddy comes home and I'm going to tell your daddy on you. Now that's the way it usually works. And so the eight-year-old and the six-year-old go into their room and the eight-year-old has a toy and the six-year-old wants it. So the eight-year-old just kind of holds it out of reach, taunts him with it, until the six-year-old finally just rears back and just kicks him on the shin. And when that happens, he lets out a scream, and they go together. And the mother comes down the hall, and she's already, you know, just at her wit's end. She opens the door, and she sees those, those boys fussing and fighting and warring and struggling over that toy. And she's brokenhearted, disappointed. And she really doesn't say a lot to them. She just looks at them. And she shuts the door and goes down the hall to her room and goes in and closes the door and begins to sob. Back here in the room, the eight-year-old says to the six-year-old, here's your toy. And the six-year-old says, no, you can have it. Things are different. And so without saying a word quietly, their conscience is just killing them. They start down the hall to their mother's room. And they knock on the door. And she says, yes. And they kind of step inside the door. 
And she looks at them and she knows that they're sorry and they're ashamed. And so she just kind of holds out her arms like this and the two little boys run into their mother's arms and are reconciled. There was a time when you and I walked out on a lonely hill and we saw him there hanging in our place and he did not call down thunderbolts like he could have to destroy us. He didn't even condemn us. All he said was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in that moment, as we looked into the face of that unique person, Jesus Christ, unique, and we understood that God loved us with an immeasurable love and forgave all of our sins. And when we said, Father, I've sinned and I'm sorry, forgive me. In that moment of reconciliation, God brought us together. Jesus brought us together with the Father. And that's what it means to be found. Do I speak to someone this morning who has never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? This evangelistic message is for those of us this morning who are lost and separated from God. God wants you. He left heaven to find you. And all he wants to do is to bring joy and life and forgiveness and usefulness and fulfillment to your life. Would you stop your flight from God? and be found. And up from the mountain, thunder ribbon, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a glad cry to the gates of heaven, Rejoice, for I found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Would you let Jesus be your Savior this morning? Boys and girls, adults, Right now in your heart, would you invite Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Do it right now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait till Bible school or revival. Right now, invite Jesus into your life. Ask Him to be your Savior. Don't wait till next time, next invitation. Step right out and come giving your life to Jesus Christ. And there might be some of us Christians who need to lead the way. Respond in rededication of life. Does it bother you that people are lost and separated from God? Are you doing anything about it? Are you sharing? Are you pointing them to Christ? Does that bother you? Maybe you just like to want to, you just may want to join our church this morning by a promise of letter, by statement. Would you join me in prayer right now where you are? Would you ask God that he'd help you know what he wants you to do and give you the courage and the strength to do it? Heavenly Father, 
thank you for the fact that you've sought us in the person of your son and you found us in salvation's experience to give life and usefulness and purpose to give reconciliation unity fellowship and I pray father for anyone in this place who has never trusted Christ who has never come to say Jesus I invite you into my life I accept you as my Savior I pray for that one to come coming to God through Jesus and I pray this morning for a Baptist who would like to come who need to come and put their life here lead them to our fellowship and place of ministry and service I ask get glory from this invitation and your purpose accomplished and your will done I ask in Jesus name